Mac Power Users, episode 668, Workflows with Tim Stringer. Hello and welcome back to Mac Power Users. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined as always by my friend and yours, Mr. David Sparks. Hey, Stephen. How are you? I am good. Happy Thanksgiving, my friend. Thank you. I You as well. I always enjoy this time of year. It's it's good. Uh, and we are joined by a very special guest. Uh, welcome back to the program, Tim. Oh, thanks very much. It's great to be back, and I'm definitely a longtime listener. It's always nice to add my voice to all the wonderful things that are shared on MPU. Yeah, Tim Stringer uh, is the guy behind Learn OmniFocus, but also you've got quite a few other projects on the internet. You're active in the community. Uh, you're, we see you on the on the MPU forums all the time, and uh, and you know just one of my favorite nerds, Tim. It's so great to have you back. Yeah, thanks, thanks for that, David. Yeah, it's really really great to be here, and yeah, I really appreciate uh, the MPU community, not just the podcast, but the uh, online forums are, I think, one of the the best places on the internet to hang out. Yeah, we've got a lot to talk about with Tim today, but before we do, just real quick, I'd like to point everyone to the Nonprofit Productivity Summit. I'm one of the speakers in it. Um, it's being run uh, by a Mac Power listener, Mike St. Pierre, really nice guy, and he's really dedicated to helping nonprofits be more productive. So he's got the website nonprofitproductive.com. If you go to the summit, you can see there slash summit. It's free, December 6th and 7th. Lots of smart people there, Tiago Forte, myself, a bunch of other great nerds. Uh, Mike Vardy is going to be speaking as well. And I think it's just a really good option if you want to, if you're running a nonprofit company and you want to get a little help, I'd recommend checking out. I, I really like the work Mike's doing and just wanted to give him a really shout out before we get started today. Uh, also today on uh, More Power Users, uh, Tim is a guy who's been using Macs for a long time. Stephen is a guy who has nearly encyclopedic knowledge about all Macs, it seems like. Uh, so we're going to go down a little trip to Apple history today for the More Power Users listeners. So stay tuned for that if you're a More Power Users listener. Uh, the, by the way, that More Power Users subscription right now, it's on sale, right, Stephen? It is. You can go to giverelay.com and you can get 20% off an annual plan of any of the Relay shows. Uh, but More Power Users, of course, is listed in there. Uh, you can buy it as a gift for somebody, or you can purchase it yourself with the coupon code 2023HOLIDAYS. Uh, but all the information is on there, 20% off an annual plan, and it runs until December 17th, so don't delay. Yeah, check it out, gang. Um, uh, and if you're getting this on Sunday, uh, there's just one day left for the sale on the Max Sparky stuff. Just go to the site, we'll put a link in, but... 20% off field guides and labs memberships, but you literally only have 24 hours left. So go check it out if you're interested in that. Tim, I mentioned earlier, uh, learn OmniFocus. So Tim was one of the early adopters of OmniFocus as a power user and sharing knowledge on it. And now you've been running that site for eight years. Congratulations. Yeah, thanks very much, David. It's, uh, the last time I was on Mac Power Users, I think it was the day after Learn OmniFocus launched. So it's amazing to still be going strong all these years later. Yeah, sorry we didn't get you back sooner. That's over an oversight <laughs> on my behalf, but uh, the uh, but it is great, and I I'm a member, and I love what you're doing over there. And uh, you're also doing some Masonic consulting and just generally helping people become more productive with their technology. 
Um, uh, what, and I would recommend anybody that's interested in OmniFocus, go check it out. He has just a constant stream of good information there. Um, but Tim, what I'm assuming you've updated some of your gear in the last eight years. What are you driving these days? Yeah. So my main, uh, Mac at the moment is a, an M1 MacBook Pro, the 13 inch. And I'm, yeah, thinking of upgrading when, uh, whenever the M, M2 models come out for maybe a 14 or 16 or something like that. But in the meantime, this is just working really well. It continues to serve me well. Uh, I've also got a late 2015 iMac, which is uh, kind of a, sort of a sidekick. I have it over to the right. And it's a bit like I've heard you, David, talk about how you use your your 12.9-inch iPad Pro as a, a dashboard. I'm essentially using my my big 27 inch iMac in that capacity. And I put, usually I have four quadrants uh, depending on what sort of things I want to be tracking. And then I can just glance over and and see what's happening. Uh, Maybe I'm leading a live session on Learn OmniFocus, or I just want to monitor something uh, that's kind of happening on the sidelines. That's that's proving to be uh, still a great, great computer all these years later. Okay, that's kind of interesting, like a, a status board, dashboard, uh, as a separate Mac as opposed to an iPad. Uh, obviously, one benefit is that massive screen, right? You're getting so much more screen real estate that you can use. Um, are you using universal control? I mean, how are you, uh, do you have two keyboards? How are you controlling that second Mac? Uh, usually with universal control, um, and that's been that's been an uh, amazing addition to macOS because it's Sometimes I forget that I'm actually using two Macs because it's so seamless to just move the mouse over to the other one and start working over there. Um, but the only sort of caveat there is sometimes on my main Mac, I'm logged into the Learn OmniFocus user because I have a kind of a whole sort of created reality there that I use for OmniFocus demos and training and things like that. Yeah. And as soon as I'm on another account, I lose the universal control. So I need to have a, uh, a separate uh, keyboard and trackpad on standby uh, that I pull out if I'm if I'm in that mode. I feel like uh, a lot of people, listeners included, don't are not aware enough of universal control. So that's a feature that got added last year. And for a new feature, I feel like it's been remarkably stable. And I'm using it with an extra 12.9 inch iPad. I've got it below my big screen. And then I've got, like I said, like Tim was saying, my status board there. But like sometimes messages come in and whatnot. And it's just for whatever reason, I'll just respond to them on the iPad. And all I have to do is drag the mouse down to it and that activates it. And then I can use my my Apple keyboard just like it was connected. Um, there used to be a time where a lot of folks would get like multiple Bluetooth radio keyboards. You don't need that. You can use the Apple keyboard for this. And of course, it works with other Macs, which Tim is doing. So if you've got a desktop Mac and you've got a, a laptop sitting next to it with the with the lid open, you can drive them both. I I just feel like there's a lot of uses for that um, that people may not think of. Uh, like the one that stands out for me is if you're a road warrior, you know, if you're in a hotel room and you've got some spreadsheets you're looking at while you're writing an email or whatever, you could put an iPad right next to your screen. You could mouse right over to it, drive it with your keyboard, but also. Um, have your Mac running at the same time. I uh, I just find so much use for this. Uh, Stephen, are you? Do you use Universal Control at all for your setups? I do some. I mean, I, I sit in front of a huge display as do you, as do you. Um, yeah. But very often I'll have my MacBook Air off to the side, you know, doing something. Um, yeah. It's kind of the machine that 
you know, if I've got a, I don't know, like move a bunch of photos around, like sometimes I'll just leave it to the side and let it crunch on something and uh, I will use it there. And on the occasion that I use my iPad mini as a uh, secondary display, I'll, I'll do that as well. But it's, uh, it is very cool. And what Tim is running into is the fact that it, it looks at what Apple ID you're signed into. And I think all three of us as people who make things on the internet, uh, I'd, as well have a fake account that I log into for like some screenshots and things. And it has its own Apple ID. And it is funny how quickly you forget of like, Oh, this isn't the the account that I think I'm logged into. Uh, it'll yeah. get you for sure. Yeah. I, I really think that uh, this is, if you've got an extra device, spend some time setting that up. It, it it's shocking. It, it, Tim gave us his uh, desktop screenshot and, um, and you know, I'm just looking at that IMAX in there, and I'm a little jealous, I have to admit. Because talk about a status board, man. That's nice big screen. You're ready to go. Uh, one other thing Tim mentioned is he's going to be upgrading to uh, M2, um, uh, and he's looking at the 14 and the 16-inch. Uh, that We hear from so many listeners that are struggling with that decision. <laughs> and I thought while, while it's on the table here, um, Steven, you went 14, I went 16. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are your thoughts now that you've been driving the 14 for about a year? The 14 is really the the perfect size. I mean, I'm currently on a, a MacBook Air because my wife wanted the 14-inch MacBook Pro, so it's, it's yeah. now her machine. But yeah. for years and years, I've wanted a 14-inch notebook because it really does split the difference between something that's ultra-portable and still has a pretty good-sized screen. And, of course, you have all the ports and all the power. I mean, really, I think for for most people, the MacBook Air is the the right machine. But if you do need more, the 14 is very good. Yeah, and for me, the 16 really served me well when I didn't have an office for a while because that extra screen real estate was really useful. But since I've moved into you know my new little construction here, I rarely, I can't remember the last time I unplugged it. It certainly was not until probably early October was probably the last time I had this computer disconnected from the monitor. So um, the 14 would probably be fine for me now, but the 16 really served me well when I needed it. Do you know which way you're leaning on it, Tim? Uh, I kind of waffle on that. Uh, I think I'd probably go for the 14 just for portability, but uh, Yeah. yeah, I'm definitely... Like like yourself, David, I don't tend to take my existing MacBook Pro away from the desk very often. So it's, uh, I think it's especially with the introduction of M1, the decision about getting a desktop for power versus a laptop for portability got much more fuzzy. And I think laptops offer, even for someone like myself who's doing a lot of video editing and things, are still far more power than I need. Um, so it's. I think it's more a question of do I want to pay more to get that package that I can just pick up and use somewhere else in the form of a laptop, or if I already have an existing monitor and so forth that I can use, maybe save a little bit of money by by having something like a studio in in play and uh, just acknowledging, yeah, this is probably not going anywhere. Yeah, I get it, man. I get it. The other thing Tim has on his desk that I'm looking at, it looks to me like a Stream Deck XL. You've got all the buttons. Oh, yeah. No, I'm a huge fan. I've had this for, I guess, years at this point, and it's hard to imagine using a Mac without one of these. And 
uh, especially in certain circumstances, if I'm doing like a live session or something and I don't want to be focused too much on the technology, it's, I just want to focus on the people who are there. For instance, I don't want to be fumbling around and trying to remember keyboard shortcuts. It's, it's so much easier just to, to press a, a button on, on the stream deck and have something happen, whether it's triggering a shortcut or a keyboard maestro macro or something like that. It also serves as a visual reminder of what mode that I'm in. So I've got like one for communications, for finance, for learn OmniFocus. Uh, so if I'm in my learn OmniFocus one, for instance, the the path of least resistance is all of the stuff to do with learn OmniFocus, which is the mode I want to be in at the moment. Um, if I'm looking at my finances, that's you know where my focus is. So it's it's not only giving me that visual reminder, but it's giving me that easy path to to make progress in whatever area that is. Yeah. And, and, you know, guys, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole too far, but I got a new stream deck this week. Oh boy. Yeah. They, they came out last week with the stream deck plus, and it is, uh, it's pretty fabulous. Honestly, <laughs> it's a, uh, so it's a different design than the, the standard stream deck. Uh, the, um, rather than having like rows and rows of buttons, like my stream deck, XL has, I think, 32 buttons. This one only has eight, but they're larger sized, which makes them really useful for displaying data on them. You know, the usual Stream Deck buttons are pretty small. But what's interesting is it has a touchscreen and four dials on it. So you can set, like, if you're doing video stuff, I know, Tim, you've got a key light here on your desk. You can set the key light to a dial so you can change the temperature and the brightness of your key light with a little dial. And the dial also, you can press it in to push it. So uh, I've only been using it a few days, but I've already got it set up to do scrubbing and edit work and screen flow. And I've got it doing, you know, all kinds of like handy stuff you can use as a volume dial. You can use it to control, you know, Apple music and stuff like that. And uh, I just did a lab. I just did a video for the labs with initial impressions and usage, but this thing is, is pretty awesome. And uh, it, it fits really nicely right next to your stream deck. In fact, I'm looking at Tim's desk, and I think there's room for one right there next to it to the left. <laughs> I'm definitely very tempted. Uh, do, do you see this as something that would replace the Stream Deck XL, or is it more of a companion device? For me, it's definitely a companion. Um, because like the Stream Deck XL, like when I open apps like OmniFocus, Apple Mail, whatnot, that thing just lights up with a whole button set that does lots of things for me. Uh, the the Stream Deck Plus only has eight buttons, which would not be enough. But the uh, the tactile idea of buttons and displays, um, and and the larger buttons, because I've always felt like you know there's a lot of plugins for the Stream Deck that like show you the time and the CPU usage and whatnot, but they're just so small, you know, they're kind of hard to read. Uh, I feel like there's something to this for that. Um, so uh, you know, it's definitely a uh, I want it, not need it thing, but I uh, I am going to be using the heck out of this thing. I, I foresee Stephen Hackett getting one once mm. I start sharing some screenshots with him. I feel like I'm going to tempt you into buying another Stream Deck. Probably. That's that's how this works. But uh, yeah. <laughs> so, Tim, we've talked about the, the Mac side of things. What about uh, iPad and iPhone? Yeah, so I'll start with the, the iPhone. I just... Uh, <laughs> Got a, I was on day one, I received the iPhone 14 Pro Max and uh, I upgraded from an iPhone 11 Pro Max. So it was quite a, quite a big step in terms of features and performance. Uh, I was already used to the form factors. There wasn't uh, 
much of an adjustment there. Uh, and my iPhone 11 Pro Max has become a, a webcam. I use that with Camo, and and I also use it for doing demos for Learn OmniFocus. So it's it's still uh, earning its keep, and uh, yeah, just really loving the uh, the uh, the 14 as well. Uh, just in some ways, it doesn't. When I first started using it, it didn't feel dramatically different from what I was used to. But then with things like the the digital island and the always on display and certainly having more more sort of uh, power and performance around the camera, uh, it would be pretty hard to go back at this point to really really got to enjoy all those new additions to the platform. Yeah, I feel like we're just now here at the end of November really seeing what the Dynamic Island and the live activities can do. I mean, I've got a handful of apps that support them and that I use them on a regular basis, but this will continue to grow, I think, over time as developers kind of figure out what makes sense for their apps in this new paradigm. Because these live activities are like, they're kind of notifications, but they're also status. Like, it's sort of a a new thing. And so it's one of those times, and we get this every once in a while in the Apple world where the hardware and software come out and do something, and it takes a while for the ecosystem to catch up. So I totally agree with you. When I got mine, I I was coming from a 13 it's like, oh, this isn't drastically different. And then over time, I've kind of learned to appreciate and I'm now really enjoying some of these apps that take advantage of what it can do. And that uh, Dynamic Island, I think, is really Apple at their, their best, where they take something that could have been seen as an eyesore, like this kind of hole in the screen, and they turn it into something delightful is the word that keeps coming up. And it's it's not gimmicky in any way, in my experience. It's it adds a touch of convenience and kind of whimsy to to the device, which really just adds to the enjoyment. One other thing you do, Tim, is you use the Logitech Vertical Ergonomic Wireless Mouse. And this is a mouse that uh, sits, stands still, but has, I believe, a trackball on it and allows you to control it. Um, that's the one, right? The ergonomic one is on the trackball, I believe. Uh, this particular one I actually move around on the desk, okay. but I I find it first of all it's a very natural position to hold a mouse. Um, uh, having the having a flat traditional kind of flat mouse does put a bit of kind of stress on the the wrists, and this one just puts it into kind of like a position you'd be in if you were shaking hands with someone. It, it very much feels feels like that, so it it just feels very comfortable in the hand. And there's something about it where it hardly seems to require very much desk space because um, there's something kind of precise about the the tracking that I think really works well. It's, I, I don't think I've ever seen that one before. I had mistaken it for the ball mouse, but it's actually, this is one I'd never realized even exists. Uh, and it's got, a, how many buttons does it have on it? Uh, let's see, it's got uh, the, the like the backwards and forwards. There's one on the top, there's one on the, the wheel. It doesn't have as many as some of Logitech's other mice. Yeah. But I do have it. I, I find in some ways I prefer that because uh, too many buttons can add complexity. I remember the very first Apple mice when they only had the one button and Steve Jobs was adamant about, you know, don't give people more than one button because they're yeah. going to click the wrong one. And, and this feels like kind of a step up in terms of... Um, it's adding some complexity, but still, I don't really have to to think about or reach for buttons or anything like that. It just feels like a good compromise. Yeah, as much as I like automation and macros, I've never found the mouse to be a good vehicle to um, to trigger them. So even the few times I've had mice with extra buttons, I rarely use them much. 
Uh, one, just to add to that, one thing you can't see in the photo is I actually have a trackpad over to the left as well. Yeah. So I find, especially when I'm in certain modes, like if I'm doing some video editing and screen flow, it's really nice to have both both hands kind of do, doing the scrolling and the pinching and the zooming. And yeah, it just makes for a more efficient workflow. And then it means that uh, I think it helps reduce strain overall. So like in my case, the right hand's not not working too hard. Do you use the Logitech software or you just connect it via Bluetooth? Uh, I do hear from people sometimes that are afraid of that Logitech software. I've never really had any huge problems with it, but what's your uh, choice for running it? Yeah, I've had uh, definitely a lot of frustrations with the Logi options. And there's Logi Options Plus, which uh, seems to be a lot better. But unfortunately, uh, at least last I checked, it doesn't support my keyboard or my mouse. So uh, after uh, many emails with Logi support, uh, I finally gave up and just started to use Better Touch Tool for programming all the buttons. And that's really worked like a dream. I've never had any issues with it at all. And and uh, it's just a more centralized place to manage all that because that's where I have some some other like keyboard shortcuts and things set up. Stephen, you think we should raise Better Touch Tool to a drinking status on the Mac Power users? <laughs> Everyone would die. Can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> it, it seems like it comes up every show these days. I mean, uh, I love that. It, you know, the developer for listeners, I forget the guy's name, the guy who develops Better Touch Tool quit his job and like said, well, I'm just going to put everything into Better Touch Tool. And like, it's a perfect example of users benefiting, you know, from supporting an indie developer because that app is just crazy. You know, like now he can, you can con- control a stream deck with it. You can run, you know, you can run your Logitech mouse through it. It's just like, it does everything. And uh, well, I'm tempted thinking about this because I've been frustrated lately with the Apple mouse with the side scrolling just keeps happening by accident. Uh, I, I'm not, I don't, I'm not a hater of the Apple mouse. I think it's fine, but I do not like it when it scrolls to the side without me intending it to. But mm-hmm. uh, what's your mouse of choice these days, Stephen? Is it still the Apple mouse? No, no, I haven't. Oh, no, okay. I've used the Logitech Performance MX for like a decade. It's an ancient Logitech they don't make anymore, and I have yeah. like three of them on the shelf. No, no, the, the Apple mouse is is uh, too small for me. I do keep a trackpad on the left though, like Tim mentioned, because it is really handy to have those gestures available and. Uh, So I've got trackpad on the left, keyboard, and then mouse on the right. This episode of MPU is made possible by 1Password, the application that David and I both trust to create strong, unique passwords and save them for using across all of our devices. Because 1Password works on basically any browser you can think of. It's on all my devices, my Apple devices, my PC. Anywhere I am, I can log in to deal with passwords, secure notes, bank account information, and in the future, pass keys, which are a new technology that uh, Apple and others are working hard to bring into the world. And 1Password has passwordless support and their vision for the future. They are part of the alliance that has made this possible. And what this means is that as security shifts away from passwords to pass keys, 1Password will be ready. They're going to be rolling out this functionality in early 2023, and they have an interactive demo and walkthrough right within 1Password, which is really cool. So 
If you're looking for 1Password for yourself or for your family or for teams, whatever you're looking for, you want to go to onepasswordcom MPU. There you can learn more and you can sign up for a free 30-day trial. And being the holiday season, it's a great time to talk to family members about this. And it's so easy to manage 1Password for families. We use it here in the Hackett household, and I don't know what we would do without it. That URL one more time is onepasswordcom MPU. You can sign up for a free 30-day trial. And when you're ready to go, you'll get 20% off. Our thanks to 1Password for their support of the show. Well, I mentioned earlier, Tim, that you've been running Learnomy Focus now for over eight years. And you really build a community there. You know, you guys do a lot of uh, webinars, meetups. Um, you have a lot of content. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you got started with it and uh, how it's changed over the years. Getting the road to Learn OmniFocus is uh, definitely not a very straight one. Uh, I just kind of landed on some things very kind of serendipitously. Uh, but it goes back. I've had my company technically simple uh, for almost 20 years. It's 20th anniversary in uh, 2023. And uh, I was kind of a generalist to to start with a I kind of did offered services based on what I was experienced with and what I what I enjoyed and and then in 2008 I was very ne- unexpectedly diagnosed with a very aggressive cancer and wasn't even sure if I was going to live to see Christmas that year so it was a really a pivotal point in my life and during this time I read the getting things done book and I'd kind of put a lot of my work on hold at this point. So I thought, okay, what am I going to do with getting things done? And I decided to create a project around healing from cancer, which uh, it just felt really good to declare that possibility even and to, to start to put some energy into it. And uh, fortunately, I did live to see Christmas and I got a clean bill of health in December of that year. And I sent off this uh Thank you note essentially to the David Allen company to say thanks so much for creating this methodology. It literally had life-changing implications in my case. And he said, uh, and um, I heard back from, I think, uh, most of the company and David Allen himself within a couple of hours. And they said, can we publish your story? And David Allen would like to interview on his uh, In Conversation series. So suddenly I kind of found myself going down this productivity path and getting getting this international exposure through through David Allen and his company. And around that same time, I was, um, I'd been using things and I was kind of hitting some, some walls on that. It uh, didn't, didn't allow me to customize things quite as much as I would like, even though I think it's um, an amazing app to this day. And I went down the OmniFocus path and realized there wasn't a lot out there in terms of guidance for getting started. Uh, I think Karush's book was out in those days, but there wasn't like a course I could do or kind of a sort of a uh, guidelines for using it in sort of real world situations. So I figured it out and got my system to the point where I, I wanted it. And and I decided, well, other people would probably benefit from what I've learned along the way. So I decided to create a course that I was offering in person here in Vancouver and contacted the Omni Group uh, just to let them let them know that I was featuring their their app and uh, course, and got a very enthusiastic reply back. And they said, "Okay, can we send a couple of people up from Seattle, and we want to film your course and interview you for our first uh, customer stories video?" So I was very happy to oblige. We had a great great day here, and they put together a great little kind of mini documentary once they got back to Seattle. 
And it just kind of went from there. I got exposure through that video. I was a, a speaker at uh, that Omni Focus setup. I know you were there as well, David, and Merlin Mann and Mike Vardy. Uh, Rush was there as well. So it's kind of one thing led to another. And I was getting requests from all over the world for people wanting help with their OmniFocus setup. And I realized there's no way I could possibly keep up with the demand. And I just found I was kind of repeating myself to and be like, oh, I wish I had a video to talk about this because we we don't have time during our session to get into this level of detail. So in uh, uh, 2014, I uh, unveiled Learn OmniFocus, not sure if there'd be enough interest to to sustain a membership-based site, uh, but I at least wanted to give it a try and see what the response would be like. And much to my surprise, uh, people have joined from 88 countries. We have a really, really thriving international community to this day. And it's not, in some ways, the site is not about OmniFocus. Uh, OmniFocus is a, a focal point for the site, but it's really about teaching productivity skills and you know helping through the community, helping people gain guidance. And the one thing we all have in common, regardless of what country we're in or work we do or anything like that, is we all have this this tool, OmniFocus. So we've got that that touch point. And, and uh, yeah, it's just been, I sort of fell into this work, but it's been just an incredible eight, eight plus years. And yeah, really excited for the future as well. Yeah, I, it does. It is really more than OmniFocus. Now, now were you using a kinkless GTD before OmniFocus or did you come in after the app had, had released? I never used kinkless GTD. Yeah, OmniFocus 1 was was out by the time I got around to using it, which would have been around 2010 or so. So it's been about, about 12 years now. Yeah. Well, another thing that you've done in this evolution is you've really kind of watched this community-based business model evolve. I think it's changed so much over the last eight years. I I just want to publicly thank you. As I set up Max Barkey Labs, you and I have talked several times and you have steered me away from mistakes um, and I appreciate it. How, how has the technology, if someone out there is thinking about doing something like this, you know, where did you start in terms of creating the site and where are you now? Yeah, sure. So going back to 2014, there wasn't really that, there weren't really that many options and those options were not nearly as mature as they are today. And uh, I went with WordPress uh, for the site, which in hindsight was a really good move because WordPress has come a long way over the last eight years, as as have all of the plugins that's, that uh, that I use to run the sites. Um, in those days, there was, um, I think it was fairly new when I started a technology called WooCommerce, which is owned by Automatic, the people behind uh, WordPress.com. And they had just, there was a, another third party that had just started to roll out a subscription-based platform. There was really no membership uh, plugin in those days, so I hired a developer to build one. And it was kind of, a, in some ways, a bit of a home-built solution from the beginning. And I needed to navigate those early days where there were some issues, stability issues with these relatively new technologies. But nowadays it's gotten to be rock solid. I'm still still running it on WordPress. It's gone through a, a major, the site has gone through a major upgrade. Uh, I guess it's about two years ago now. And um, it's, yeah, it's just the, the WooCommerce plugins and all those 
WordPress uh, plugins that I rely on have really come a long way. And there's a really robust membership plugin in there. And I don't know if that's necessarily the way to go today, because it is a fairly major undertaking to to kind of assemble all the pieces and build up that site. And there are some sort of more pre-assembled options today. Uh, but the one nice thing about being on WordPress and kind of putting all the puzzle pieces together is really the site is infinitely expandable. I don't need to rely on a company and sort of lobby them to add new features to the platform. I can work with my amazing web developer and uh, we can look at some existing plugins and might add on like a new component to the site. Yeah, that, that really helps. And it is uh, remarkable how much WordPress has grown grown over the years. I mean, it, it could have gone by the wayside, you know, as mm-hmm. th- these, uh, you know, pre-canned uh, solutions arise. And, you know, like, um, you know, Squarespace is a uh, frequent uh, ad- advertiser here, but I actually do recommend them because I think it's so much simpler. But when you're doing something like Tim's doing, you actually need the power of WordPress and they have evolve to give you what you need. I, I did the same thing when I opened the labs, I moved over to WordPress. Um, the other thing that Tim does a lot that I think people need to be thinking about is online automation. I know you're a big Zapier user. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, yeah. Make really good use of Zapier and, and especially for sort of web-based tools. Uh, for instance, I have a a Zap setup that if there's a payment failure on Learn OmniFocus, it automatically creates a task for me in Asana. Uh, and that task could in the future be assigned to somebody else automatically if I'm no longer dealing with those. But just the fact that uh, all this stuff is going on automatically and it's kind of keeping an eye on things for me. And similarly, if there's a, a new order that comes into Learn OmniFocus, it gets logged in a Slack channel so I can just kind of see those things scrolling through and uh, yeah, just kind of helps to really bring a sort of dynamic quality to the the site and, and just allows me to keep an eye of what's, what's going on without having to get too sort of manual about digging in and looking at the different systems within the website and so forth. So, and so I'm already using Zapier and I'm sure I'll come up with many more use cases in the future, but uh, yeah, it's been a real boon in the, in the sort of web-based online space. Yeah, and we come we talk about automation a lot in Mac Power users, and Rose and I have a whole podcast about it, but um, a lot of people who are taking great advantage of shortcuts and you know text expander and those options on the Mac, I feel like haven't explored this idea of web-based automation. And it's exactly like Tim described, where you've got applications that already talk to the web, you know, like your webs like a WordPress website or an Asana task manager and you know a slack channel and it allows you to glue those together remarkably easy it's not that difficult you know it's it's drag and drop kind of the lego style automation except it goes left to right except instead of top to bottom uh and tim has chosen zapier but tim i know there's others out there matter if this then that and, and some other options what how did you land on zapier as your choice for this uh, well, they were definitely one of the early early players in that that space, and uh, yeah. I think I just got experience with it. I uh, I'm comfortable with their their privacy and security and things like that, and and that's kind of a trend for me. I find in more recent years is to take an app or a service and just go really deep on it, and there is kind of the distraction that comes with you know looking at other like 
competitors to Zapier and hoping I'll find something in there that's going to help me out. And I do kind of uh, take a look at those sometimes if I hear on automators or something about a kind of a uh, an alternative platform. Yeah. But it would take something fairly major for me to to shift because I do have that investment in learning and I have that confidence and reliability. And yeah, that's just not a... It's not a pain point by any stretch of the imagination. It's really whatever the opposite of a pain point is. Yeah, there's momentum, right? And once you learn the system, and I, I misspoke earlier. I think I said matter, which is the home automation principle. Mm-hmm. I, I meant make um, is the the uh, alternative. That used to be called Integromat, and they, I think, wisely changed the name to make. Integromat doesn't really roll off the tongue. No. Yeah. <laughs> but that's a good one, too. I think there's such a... Um, importance around privacy with these things too, because I am opening up some confidential business information to these services. So that's, to me, that and reliability are the the two important things. And if Mm -hmm. I'm not totally confident that another system can deliver on both of those, then yeah, it's not even not even worth considering at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of my hangups with these is they're so tied to Google stuff because Google makes it so much easier for these services to get it. Like if you use Gmail, Google calendar, I feel like these services have more power and I prefer not to use the Google services. Um, but that seems to be changing, you know, as I've been playing with this, we're planning a show on this on automators and I'm using them again a little more and it's getting better at using like IMAP and, you know, non Google, uh, information services. But, uh, I do feel like, uh, if you use the Google stuff, this, this is, almost always a little more powerful. Yeah, no, that's one of the reasons I use Google myself. Uh, but I think there there's getting to be more and more hooks into other online services. And and, and it's maybe not totally obvious that uh, something like Zapier can interface with native apps as well. And I don't even, I think of the kind of distinction of a native app as it's it's something that's built for the platform, just like OmniFocus is, is built for the Apple devices, but essentially it is in in some measures a, a web-based app. It's something that interacts with the cloud storage. Um, it's something that it's fairly limited at the moment, but you can feed things into OmniFocus through that OmniFocus mail drop. So for instance, uh, if somebody has a private consulting session with me, um, they book it, it'll automatically create a task in my OmniFocus inbox to remind me to invoice them. And I need to just do a uh, just a little bit of work there to put it into the proper bucket and give it a date. But, but there is something happening in this online service that's triggering this response, in this case, in OmniFocus. And and uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's very seamless. And I don't need to forget to invoice someone for a session. That whole sort of piece of it is, is taken away. And it's just creating those, those actions right where I need them. Yeah, I've always liked that about you, Tim, that you do take the time to set these automations up. And, you know, you're proof that if you take the time to do this stuff, uh, it does pay off. And the nice thing is the way these things kind of pile on each other. I mean, a lot of people will say, well, I don't want to learn this automation because, you know, I'm only going to do this once in a while and I don't think it'll pay off. But stuff like on web-based automation, once you learn how something like Zapier works, it actually, the learning curve is fairly shallow. And once you build a couple of them, which granted are going to take a while the first time, you'll find all sorts of uses for them, especially if you're someone like Tim 
who has a business that relies on several online type services. Yeah, totally. And if, even if it's something that triggers once in a while, um, there's that kind of peace of mind that comes from knowing that there's some automation that's running on the web that's going to give me whatever alert. Uh, so for instance, if I do have a uh, an email with a billing inquiry, I want to make sure I deal with those right away. So that shows a badge on the pushover app on my iPhone. Um, so right on my home screen, I can see that light up and I, I don't risk kind of losing it in a sea of emails or something like that. Um, yeah. So there's, yeah, just that kind of peace of mind that's knowing that uh, it's almost like these services have got my back. I, I don't have to kind of worry about things happening. I know I'll be informed if there's anything that really needs my attention. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Text Expander. Man, I love Text Expander, and you can get it today by going to textexpander.com/mpu. Use that code, and you get twenty percent off your first year. But why do I love Text Expander? It's because it's one of the best and easiest ways to get automating. Now, text Expander is a text expansion app, as the name implies. If you type in a few characters like C C E L L, then it types in your cell phone number for you, and you can create these automations very easily. But Text Expander goes so much deeper than that. With Text Expander, you can put keyboard commands like tab and return and all sorts of cool stuff. You can do date math, so you can run a text expansion snippet that automatically inserts the date a week from now or you know two weekdays from now. Uh, with Text Expander, you can run Apple scripts and other automations as part of them. This is why it's so essential to me for email. In email, I can hit the subject line, type in a text expander snippet. It types that in. Maybe it puts the current month and year into that. Then it hits the tab key. Then it types in an Apple script that automatically adds the person's name. And then it hits a return key and writes an email. It just does all this stuff that you just really can't do with any other text expansion utility. And in addition to all of that, Text Expander is on all the platforms that you need, Mac, Windows, Chrome, iPhone, iPad. And because it's uh, online service now, you can share it with your team. So if you've got other people you work with, you can have a common set of text expansion snippets that you use between you. And if one of them changes, you go and change it, and then it automatically propagates to everybody else on your team. Uh, there's just really nothing that you can do with text expansion and text expander. It is super powerful. I love it. Uh, Steven and I are both daily users of it. We've got lots of uses for it. Uh, it comes up on the show all the time, and they've been a longtime sponsor. In fact, they were the very first sponsor of the Mac Power users, so we'll always appreciate that as well. Look, if you want to get started automating and you want a tool that can really make a difference in your day, go check out Text Expander. That URL is textexpander.com slash MPU, textexpander.com slash MPU. Get that 20% off and start automating today. And thank you, Text Expander, for all of your support of the Mac Power users over the years. So, Tim, as we record this, OmniFocus 4 has been in beta for quite a while. Uh, we'll have a link in the show notes to the OmniGroups beta page. And I'm uh, curious about your take on it as an OmniFocus expert and what people uh, may be able to expect once this rolls out. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, it's been exciting to, to witness the, the uh, kind of evolution of OmniFocus 4. And as you mentioned, it is currently in test flight. Uh, I think especially on the iPhone and iPad, it's gotten to be, it's almost gotten to feel a bit like a release product. There's still some... Some 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 bugs that creep in. Uh, I definitely wouldn't 
wouldn't treat it that way just yet. I guess uh, I think you, you, you need to be mindful that this is a work in progress. And it uh, has taken and taken a while, but uh, as a developer, I can appreciate all the work that the Omni Group are doing behind the scenes, specifically around the Swift UI, uh, which is a cross-platform technology that's going to make it much easier in the future to bring features uh, cross-platform. Because in the past, in OmniFocus 3, the iPhone and iPad are lagging behind the Mac, and there's been certain features like Quick Open and Focus and things that I use all the time on the Mac, and I really missed having them on the iPhone and iPad. Uh, whereas this has really made it much more practical to bring all that greatness to all of the devices. Because ultimately, yeah. just like other apps I use, like uh, things like Ulysses and Craft, I just want to grab whatever device is nearby and and just start to use, in this case, OmniFocus without having to think about, oh, there's a feature that I really need that's only on the Mac. So I need to kind of go into the next room and use my Mac. It's it's made for a much more sort of seamless process. Yeah. So I want to like talk about that for a minute. It's a it's a running theme on the show of this kind of like weird spot that developers are in right now where you know, Apple has had a traditional programming methodology and system. It's UI kit on uh, the Mac and app kit on the iPhone. The iPhone app kit was developed, you know, kind of in the more recent era where UI kit goes all the way back to, you know, the origins of Mac OS 10. And, but they're moving on. And, you know, Swift UI was announced a few years ago. Uh, but also, you know, people are going to use uh, like, um, you know, different uh, solutions like multi-platform solutions where they can build an app and it works on multiple platforms like, you know, uh, Obsidian does that. And, but none of them are really in a very mature state right now. So people are like giving the developers a hard time. It's like, well, you made this thing that's not really Mac native or uh, you're using UI kit, which is what is Mac native or the future of Mac native, but it's not fully baked yet. So it doesn't give you all the features I feel like developers are really in a catch-22, no matter which way they go. Omni Group has chosen to use UIKit. And um, the advantage of that is that, like Tim said, it's going to have common features rolling out to all platforms at all times. Going into the future is going to make it really great for the app's future development. Uh, the downside is it takes a long time to build it because, you know, whereas this, you know, OmniFocus 4 has been in development I don't know how long, but I'd say a couple of years at this point from what, what I've seen. I don't know the inside story, but it's taken longer than normal. And that's because I feel like they are finding the rough edges of UI kit and probably working with Apple to get that sorted out. But I feel like we're also getting close to the payoff on this. Yeah, so and, and Swift UI has really been evolving as the Omni group are developing OmniFocus. So that's that's not an easy situation to be in because they're not working with something that's necessarily completely baked. And, uh, and even Apple's own apps, I don't think there's to this day that many that use SwiftUI. I know um, Shortcuts is built on that, but even Apple themselves are facing this, this challenge internally, I imagine, uh, just to adopt their own technology. Uh, so it was a pretty bold move um, by the Omni Group, uh, but I, I know Ken Case is such a uh, a veteran. Uh, he's been around for so long, and I'm sure he didn't make this this uh, decision lightly. And I think it was really looking at the long game here. 
not how can we wow people in the next year. It's more like how can we wow them over the next 10 years and and build something that uh, I think Apple is deeply invested in Swift UI at this point. And uh, I think it's only going to get better. And even if OmniFocus 4.0 doesn't have everything that people had hoped for, it's really important to to mention that that's really just the beginning of OmniFocus 4. And there's there's going to be a lot of opportunity to add uh, within that sort of OmniFocus 4 sort of cycle. Yeah. And they are in public beta, like Stephen said. We're going to put a link in the show notes. You can go download it. But I, I've got to tell you, uh, using the beta, that it has, I, there were a lot of features I thought might not make it that did make it. So um, they're actually way more mature with this this 4 beta than than I expected. Uh, given that they're on Switch UI. I can't help but feel like, um, again, I have no inside knowledge, but I, uh, there's got to be like a bat phone at this point between you know Omni Group and Apple over Swift UI because they must have found so many bugs and issues as they were developing this because it is, I think, probably one of the most powerful apps that's going to ship on Swift UI. And you know, going back, Tim had said, you know, the uh, shortcuts for Mac with Swift UI. Well, remember the first year of shortcuts for Mac, it was pretty rough, you know, and um, and I'm not getting that from these betas. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and I think, yeah, Apple's uh, probably very happy that the Omni Group are using SwiftUI because then that gives them an external developer to work with who's, uh, who's yeah, really doing doing quite a complex app. And the Omni Group, you know, goes way back. I mean, mm-hmm. they, you know, so so they're not, they're not novices to this business. Uh, not at all. That's one of the things that gives me real, real confidence in the the future of this and their other apps. One thing that OmniFocus Four will continue is the scriptability of the application. So there's Apple Script support, shortcut support, Omni automation, uh, which is all JavaScript based. Uh, and Tim, I was wondering, has that changed dramatically in the beta, or is what people have learned and gotten used to in three will that carry forward into version four? Uh, yeah, generally speaking, it's it's a natural progression of, of version three, and I don't think I've found any plugins that were developed for version three that don't work in OmniFocus four. Oh, good. So they've uh, really done a good job of uh, of even in even though it's still in test flight of not breaking things through through plugins, at least in my experience. And and I think the uh, Omni automation is something that doesn't always get quite as much attention as it deserves. And I think people sometimes hear, especially maybe someone who's a bit less tech savvy might hear the word auto- automation and go running for the trees. And I almost, in some cases, you can think of it just as an extensions uh, uh, sort of service for OmniFocus, just the way you have plugins for Safari and extensions for Chrome, because there's an increasingly large number of plugins that some very bright developers have written where you literally just double click on the file and you've got that extra feature added into into OmniFocus. And it could be just something simple, like I want to, on my keyboard, I do option command L and that opens any links that are in the the notes field. And that's not something that's supported by OmniFocus, even OmniFocus 4, but thanks to a great plugin, in this case by Caitlin Salsky, um, I've got that extra feature that I use literally multiple times in it. Yeah, the the, the JavaScript automation does scare people off because it's it's a programming language. It's not like uh, clicking together a shortcut, which it does have shortcuts, so you're good for a lot of the stuff you want to do. But the thing with the JavaScript is it has 
freed up power users to to go crazy. And kind of the interesting story on this is Sal Sigoyan, who's been a guest on the show several times and was, um, I always forget his title at Apple, but he was the the head of automation in, in essence. You know, he's the guy who was behind Apple Script and Automator, but he left Apple a few years ago. And uh, the Omni Group kind of snapped him up and one of his jobs now is helping them. And he was the driving force behind this idea of JavaScript automation. The advantage of that is that unlike Apple Script, which is only on the Mac, JavaScript can be run on the iPhone and iPad as well as the Mac. So all the automation generated through that stuff runs on all of your instances of OmniFocus. And what it does is it gives you the ability to create new features in the application. Like if you just, like Tim was saying, you know, Caitlin made a script that did a feature that doesn't exist in the app. I've got several that I run the same. And Sal, one of Sal's interesting, um, you know, things he's about is trying to make turn your voice into an operating system. That's always been, I know he worked on that when he was at Apple and now he's working on it outside. So he has scripted all this stuff to voice commands too. So you can literally run OmniFocus with your voice. And when he was setting that up, he wrote 100, at the time it was 100 now, I'm sure it's over that, scripts through JavaScript to do all sorts of things, selecting boxes, moving defer dates, like no matter what it is you want to do in OmniFocus, Sal just went crazy and wrote all these scripts where I don't know that I would need to learn Java, JavaScript because it seems like Sal's written so many. I'm not sure what's left, but you can just download these and plug them in. And, uh, and it, it, of course, it works really well with version four. And that is, uh, I know I sound like I'm in the bag for the Omni Group. They were a sponsor of the show years ago, but I just, I'm just really impressed with what they're doing with this version four. Yeah, and I was really happy and just in general when Sal joined uh, the Omni Group and uh, really brought all of this, not just knowledge, but he's got such a kind of a contagious passion for for automation in general. And I've had many chats with him. He led one of the courses on Learn OmniFocus and just a a very, he has a, a gift for making it approachable, even teaching someone how to you know, write JavaScript code. He has this very kind of calm energy that uh, that makes it easy to to be guided through it, and not get daunted by kind of the word programming or something like that. Yeah, he's a good teacher and just a nice fella. Um, he, by the way, when we did the the member special for Automators a few years ago, we went over his house and played Mousetrap with him, which I thought was hilarious and nobody seemed to get. But you know. It, it works. Uh, but if you go to omni slash automation.com, that is Sal's site where he's got all the Omni group stuff. And uh, in particular, there's a ton of stuff there for OmniFocus. And even if you're running OmniFocus 3, I think all of it works with that too, uh, the most recent builds. Uh, and I would recommend going there and playing with it and see what kind of cool features you can add to your app. Uh, what are your so you talked about the one from Caitlin, who is by the way booked? We're going to have her on the show uh, early next year. I'd kind of like to wait till OmniFocus Four ships before we have her on, but uh, she is. Um, I think she's an accountant in uh, Australia who uh, does some really great work with Omni Automation and uh, just a, a really nice lady. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but what are some of your favorite plugins other than the one from Caitlin that you're running currently? Yeah, sure. Yeah, and Caitlin was actually a guest on Learn OmniFocus. She's also studying computer science as well, so she's yeah. uh, definitely gone deep into the the programming side of things. Um, Caitlin has another one that I really like called Templates for OmniFocus. Uh, 
and it allows you to keep template projects um, right within OmniFocus. You can even cleverly have them hidden away. She's got to come up with a clever scheme for kind of keeping them out of your your field of view when you're working through things. But uh, you can do placeholders similar to the one that Kurt Clifton wrote as an Apple script uh, years ago. So you could have a project to plan for a trip and it'll ask you, where are you going? Who are you going with? Things like that. But she's really taken it a step further where it'll do date calculations um, where you can put little dollar sign date equals into the notes field and it'll intelligently pull that out. Uh, you can even have optional actions and groups. So if you're going on a winter trip versus a summer one, you can say, do I want to include this this group of actions or not? So just a really, really impressive uh, uh use of, of plugins and one that where I can take a fairly complex project and within literally seconds have, have a copy of that made and all customized for whatever I need it for. So, so that's definitely worth investing in. Um, there's just, uh, there's one called task date controls. It was written by one of the support people at the, the Omni group and, uh, Christian Y that's a good one. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. you can, again, just tie a keyboard shortcut to add one day to the defer date or one day to the due date or something like that, or one week. And that's one that I use all the time. Yeah. I had written app, I had written Apple scripts for all that stuff. And I just tossed them all in the trash when this came out. Cause this is so much better and faster. You can put it on stream deck buttons. It's just awesome. Yeah, no, that's no, a really nice one. Uh, Josh Hughes as well has a couple of uh, plugins for toggling tags. So if you want to just turn a tag on and off as a the simple use case. And again, that could be tied to a keyboard shortcut. Uh, he's also written one called Gener- Generate Toggle Tag. So it'll it's actually a plugin that creates a plugin and you can point it to a group of tags and you can say only one of these can be active at any given time. So if I had one for days of the week and I choose Wednesday and Monday was on there already, it'll remove Monday and put Wednesday onto it. So very, very clever. And again, uh, quite, there's not a lot of knowledge required to download these and put them into use. And sometimes you need to read through the manual, and maybe spend 20 minutes kind of uh, learning to use it. But then once you've got it in place, it starts to feel like just another feature within OmniFocus. And sometimes I forget that, you know, these are not actual OmniFocus features. They're so, yeah, I know. They're so right. well integrated. There. And you can create shortcuts on them. You can put them on Stream Deck buttons so you can run them from your phone or your Mac. They're, it's just very powerful. In fact, I'm thinking as you were talking, I'm definitely going to get angry email from this segment because I spent last week talking about how great Reminders has become, and it really has become great, I feel like, lately. But now we're talking about OmniFocus, and people are going to like, all right, Sparky, just stop j- jerking me around, you know? <laughs> I, and I think people- for, yeah, I, was, I haven't quite finished listening to the show on Reminders and Notes, but um, the way I look at Reminders is it has become a very robust application, and I think of reminders as kind of the equivalent to iMovie, and I think of OmniFocus as equivalent to to Final Cut Pro. And if you were making a feature presentation, you probably want to use Final Cut. There's there's enough sort of power user features in there that you know yeah. it's going to be well worth your while. If you're making uh, even a you know a corporate video or something like that that doesn't have a lot of complexity to it, then you know iMovie could be more than adequate and might actually be a much better choice. Yeah, my feeling is exactly. I think that it like it, what what reminders currently does is sucks a lot of the oxygen out of the room for non power 
um, reminders apps unless, you know, it's got to have a lot of power to be better than reminders at this point. And, uh, that's going to be a, it's just going to be interesting how that all evolves, but I guarantee you uh, reminders is never going to get this, uh, this, uh, JavaScript automation ability. Like that's just not something that's on Apple's radar. In fact, if they had done it, the only guy that would have done it is now working for Omni, <laughs> you know, it would have yeah, been yeah. Sal, right? I mean, I'm yeah. not sure anybody at Apple would ever do this. And there's just certain features in OmniFocus that I don't think I could give up, like defer dates. Um, yeah. I just don't want to see things until they're available or at least have the option of not seeing them. Are you sure you didn't listen to that whole episode? You sound oh, yeah. <laughs> very similar to me at the end of that one. I think I might have read your mind or something like yeah. that. But yeah, I know we've kind of arrived at very similar places here. And the fact I have a site called Learn OmniFocus, it makes it really easy to decide which task manager to use. <laughs> you know, I didn't really feel that way. Even though I've made field guides about OmniFocus, if something is better, I would go to it. I mean, I feel like that's what people, I, I'm going to go where, where, whatever helps people the most. But I, I honestly, you know, having surveyed the landscape, I feel like the Omni group is, is still there. This episode of MPU is brought to you by Electric. When you think of the phrase boss move, you might think of making a bold business decision or maybe giving a great presentation in front of a big crowd. But of course, the reality is that sometimes being a boss in a small business means sorting out the orange juice you just spilled into your own keyboard or helping a staff member set up their new laptop. The team over at Electric knows how small businesses, maybe like yours, face these challenges. That's why they've solved this problem for you by operating as your IT department. So instead of spending time sorting through unused application licenses, setting up employee laptops, and answering never-ending IT questions, you can focus on building your business. With Electric acting as your IT department, you can get back to what you're good at. Plus, you get a really cool IT platform to see and manage everything. Delegation is so important in a small business. It's a lesson I've learned over and over over the last eight years. And with a team like Electric acting as your IT department, you can just take a big chunk of worry off your plate. So go check it out. For MPU listeners, Electric is offering a free pair of Beat Solo 3 headphones for taking a qualified meeting. Just go to electric.ai slash MPU. That's electric.ai slash MPU. The link is in the show notes. Go there now to get a free pair of Beat Solo 3 headphones today for scheduling a meeting. Our thanks to Electric for their support of the show. Tim, as people who talk about task management a lot, I'm dealing with a thing from people that send me emails and write me and talk to me uh, that I call task overload. And as friends, when you and I talk offline, we are both addressing this with people in our communities often. And I thought it'd be fun to talk about that for a little bit on a podcast. So um, you are teaching people how to use uh, applications like Asana and OmniFocus, but um Talk about this task overload problem that you see from from your folks. Yeah, sure. Uh, first of all, one distinction I think is very important is between personal productivity and team collaboration. So personal productivity is all about getting your ducks in a row, you know, managing whatever's on your plate. In some ways, you can manage it however you want to. And that's the nice thing about using a personal task manager like OmniFocus. You can really make it your own and use emojis, don't use emojis, uh, just really, really personalize it to you. And then there's the whole other layer that's the team collaboration, which is really about keeping people on the same page, making sure they work efficiently together, that there's no 
duplicate effort, that balls aren't getting dropped, that people have clarity on, you know, when is this thing actually due and, you know, who's doing what, those types of things. And I think personal productivity is a, a great skill and, and having a tool set to, to support that as well for, for every, anybody. It doesn't matter, you know, what, what sort of work you do or if you work for yourself or for a big company, personal productivity is always going to be there. And that includes, um, you know, developing practices like getting things done. I've got a, a methodology called holistic productivity as well that I, I teach and, and certainly practice myself as well. So there's that whole sort of, it's almost a personal self-development side of things where if you can get to be a personal productivity ninja, you can you can kind of go anywhere in any circumstance and still make a contribution. And then on the team collaboration side of things, if uh, an organization is is well organized, they've got some good structure in place to allow people to communicate and and they spend uh, just what's appropriate on that so they're not spending a lot of time managing the work. It's really clear what work needs to be done and who's doing what. Then even if you have people working at the team who aren't particularly strong on the personal productivity side of things, they can still make a significant contribution. And I think the real the real sort of magic happens when you have personal productivity ninjas who work at a company and organization that's got a great system in place to help everything be coordinated in that point. The, I think the sky's the limit. Uh, there's so much that can be accomplished. Yeah, but the problem starts, I think, when you start to explore these apps and you don't think through the whole the holistic piece of it. Like, because a computer can track 10,000 projects doesn't mean that you should have 10,000 projects. And I feel like a lot of people get into this stuff and you know, you have the first kind of the light bulb goes off when you see how, how powerful it is and how much it helps you organize. You can run all the great JavaScripts and all this stuff. And then at the end of the day, you've got this unmanageable list of things. So you've got too many tasks and you're putting too much weight on the task manager, which is really two indistinct problems. You know, how do you help people get past that? Yeah, I think it's really defining what is the purpose of the task manager. Is this a a place where you park ideas or take notes on things? Is this a place where you make sure that you pay your gas bill, et cetera, et cetera? And I've found in general using whether it's OmniFocus or things or reminders or to do us whatever it is, there needs to be a, a very clear distinction between sort of aspirational things and ideas and and uh, you know committed actions. So the way I approach this is I don't keep ideas and things in OmniFocus. I I don't use that as a place to brainstorm. Uh, it's it's become what I sometimes talk about as a kind of a personal ticketing system. So when I assign an action or create a project in OmniFocus, I'm essentially creating a ticket for my future self. Just kind of the same way if you were having problems with your computer, you might open a ticket with IT or if you needed support from a software developer or something like that. So just like a support team can only handle so many tickets, as a, an individual, I know I can only handle so many tickets on the personal productivity side of things. And I do need to, I do want to keep those ideas. I'm definitely a real ideas man. I'm always coming up with ideas, but I purposely don't keep them in OmniFocus. In my case, they'll go into craft and then I can play with them. Um, 
this goes back to actually an early, early MPU uh, episode. I think it was called Baking Ideas, if I remember correctly. Cooking I just love Ideas. That. Yeah. Cooking yeah. Ideas. Okay, I was close. Yeah. But I just love that idea of uh, taking a seed of a thought and incubating it and playing with it without having any sort of commitment to doing anything with it. And that's how I tell the difference. If it's in OmniFocus, then I've got a an intention or a commitment to taking action on this thing. If it's sitting as a node in Cruft, then it's kind of like it's in the sandbox. I can play with it. I can give it away to somebody else. I could take a piece of it and do something with it. I could just drop it all together if I decide it doesn't have a lot of value in the future. Um, so this is really pointing to the how essential it is to have a note-taking app. Okay, let me so let me interrupt there and just uh, yeah, sure. just uh, illustrate what I think you're doing is why it makes so much sense. Is I believe that collection of ideas and judgment of ideas are two separate things, and quite often uh, a mistake you make is trying to combine them into the same step. We have lots of ideas that later we decide are bad ideas, but if you incorporate it into an OmniFocus project with the inception, I think there is a bit of mental blockage with rejecting the idea in general. So what you're doing makes so much sense. You're you're putting it into like an incubation pot and whether or not that actually becomes a project is going to require a separate thought process. And I believe anybody who's trying to combine those things is asking for trouble. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I think um, OmniFocus, as much as I like the app, I don't find it's a particularly good app for brainstorming and planning and things like that. That's really getting to that more sort of left brain sort of way of thinking to say, okay, I want things at this point defined as a specific action. I want to just go to my today perspective and get down to work. Um, I want to do all my creative work in in an app that's really sort of more designed for sort of play and experimentation, things like that. Exactly. And so, so one step we've got here is separate notes from tasks. I think that's a good tip. And when you when it comes down to do those tasks, then having that r- rich assortment of notes, uh, I find sometimes it feels like I'm at least halfway done on a project because I've been collecting ideas on it for the last two years. And, and there's a certain ease that that comes once I do move into action. But that sort of playing with those ideas didn't feel forced at all. I was doing it in a much more relaxed sort of setting. Yeah. And so you're doing that in craft? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm definitely craft right now is where it's kind of the hub for increasingly pretty much everything in my life. Like I have a craft note for the car. I've got one for Mac, Mac power users. I've got one for this specific episode we're doing. My air conditioner gets a craft note. Like it's, yeah. it's uh, just having a sort of a touch point to say, if, you know, I have, uh, you know, some information on the car and I just got the user's manual and I want to drop it in. Actually having a place to put that, as simple as it may seem, is is kind of life-changing in a way because all of a sudden I have a place to interact with that that piece of my life, knowing that I can find it. And then if I do need to take action in that area, then I've, I've got this sort of wealth of information that I've gathered very organically mm-hmm. in some cases over many years. Yeah, truly PKM, same thing. I, I do something similar, but I split it between notes and craft, but that's a whole nother discussion. But yeah, it makes sense. Do you link those then to, if you make an OmniFocus project, do you link them together? 
Yeah, totally. And I'll typically use hook for that, uh, just because it makes it so, or hook mark as it's called now. Yeah. Um, because it just makes it so easy to create those links. And one feature of Hookmark I really like is I can have a craft uh, note, for instance, and then I can say hook to new OmniFocus action. So that puts an OmniFocus action in my inbox. And if that's more than an action, then I just do uh, shift command one or the shift exclamation yeah. point, and that turns it into a project, which is still linked to the, the, the document in craft. And then I'm off to the races with within seconds. I've got a an action or a project that's ready to go, and um, I've got you know very easy access to all that information. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was one thing we spoke about last week. Really missing from from Apple's ecosystem. If you're all in on notes and reminders, uh, linking these things is a little more difficult. I believe Hookmark does support Apple Notes at least on the Mac. But then if you're relying on that uh, on the iPhone and the iPad, that's where it's. You don't have that complete convenient access. Yeah. Apple needs to do a better job of, of exposing that stuff for sure. Um, so then you've got notes for, you know, the uh, incubation. You've got uh, OmniFocus for the task management. I guess I shouldn't say notes. It's craft. Uh, what are the other pieces of the system for you? Uh, fantastic, Al, on the, the calendar side of things. Um and those are essentially are the three, three main apps uh, for my personal productivity side of things. But then when we get into the the team side of things, that's where Asana has been uh, an app service that I've been using even before Asana was officially a released product. So that I really kind of uh, got into the ground level with with the work they were doing, and there was something about it that really drew me in right from the beginning, and. Uh, I continue to be a very avid user. That's a big part of my business too, is helping teams of people make good use of Asana. Uh, and in some cases, that also means uh, helping somebody who's got all kinds of tasks that are for really for other people and get them out of OmniFocus and into a collaborative system. Because uh, that's one thing I've found working with clients over the years is they, they'll use a personal task manager essentially to manage other people's lists. They've got all these agenda items they have a whole bunch of waiting for and the problem is the person that they're working with they don't have visibility into any of that so that's where if something is of kind of shared interest i think it's really essential to put it into some sort of a shared system whether it's using apple's tools like notes and reminders or using a really a a really professional tool like uh, like asana if you're you're doing more sort of complex sort of corporate type things. Okay. So this gets people into trouble though, because they're like, well, wait a second. I've got two task managers. I got to look two places. Uh, how do you break that up in a way that's logical for people and doesn't cause those types of, of conflicts? Yeah, sure. So first of all, the personal task manager is going to be there regardless of where someone's working or if they're working or, or not true. I mean, they might work with 10 different companies and, I find it's important to have a, a central go-to list to say, okay, what do I do next? If that's spread over a whole bunch of different places, that's where it can become a little dizzy. So I, I really encourage everyone to have their own task list that's independent of any really anybody else or any other companies or anything like that. And then when people assign a task in Asana, I find they don't tend to assign like an individual action They'll say, like, uh, the task will be to research 
this thing and provide recommendations. Maybe that's going to take them the next couple of weeks. And from the assigner's point of view and other people within the organization, they maybe don't uh, need to know anything beyond that. They might be involved in the conversation as that task is getting done, but they don't necessarily need to know how that individual is going to actually take on that work and make it happen. So it can work really well to essentially make that task a project in OmniFocus and then have that combined with all the other specific things that are being tracked there. And the same approach could be applied to things to do as it doesn't, it isn't specific to OmniFocus. Um, so somebody's working at a personal task level on some work that's going to benefit the organization, but they're they're not uh, there's visibility into what's going on at the organizational level, and they can kind of manage it however they want at a personal task level, even if they just want to use pen and paper to kind of work through that. Um, I just kind of want to put exclamation points because you're saying so much good stuff, but uh, I think when you're doing this, the trick is the collaborative stuff is results, not steps. Like mm, you yeah. know. You're collaborating with somebody. It's like, okay, I need you to get the ball to this yard line, but I'm not going to tell you exactly how to do it. And then as a team, we're looking at what your next goal is. But in, as you, the way you do the work, like you said, if you want to write it on a napkin, if you want to get OmniFocus or do it in reminders or things or whatever app floats your boat, uh, all we need to know is that you get to the result. And then for me, the work I do, my results are going to show up there as well, but you're not going to see my individual steps. And I think that's the trick if you're going to yeah. have two of these. Don't try to put the details in both systems or you're going to make yourself crazy. No, I'd say avoid data duplication if at all possible, because as soon as you have two pieces of data that are, are supposed to represent the same thing, it's just a matter of time before you have conflicts in there and it's going to, going to create confusion. I think another thing too is the using a, a solution like Asana means the conversations can be had within Asana in the context of the the tasks and the projects that are being done in a collaborative level. So it avoids uh, even in Asana themselves they they virtually use no emails for internal communications. It's all done pretty much all done within Asana. Uh, and then there's the other piece too is uh, there's a project management term called the source of truth. And it's so important that people be on the same page in terms of who's doing what and by when it's being done. And if that changes, it really needs to just change in one place. If uh, if the engineering team uh, thinks that something needs to be ready by the end of January, but the sales team decides they want it in mid-January and they forget to tell the engineering team. And I've actually run into these issues in the past, and it's incredible how much unnecessary stress that they can create versus saying this is when we're delivering, it's shared between all the people involved. And if something does change, um, they'll they'll get notified and they can have whatever conversations need to be had to get people back uh, you know, in agreement on when things are happening. So where does the calendar component fit for you? Uh, really, uh, the calendar is about, uh, you know, what am I doing when, uh, whether I'm on like a Mac Power Users interview as I am now, or I've got time blocked off to make sure that I am ready for the Mac Power Users interview. So uh, it's it's really a combination of the two. And it's there's something kind of um, grounding about using a calendar because unlike OmniFocus, where you can overload it with thousands of tasks, uh, you're only going to get those 24 
hour blocks in, in a calendar in the day. So, mm-hmm. so it's sometimes it's just about saying, okay, I've got a lot to do. I'm going to block time off for the most important things, and then I'll actually know how much time I actually have left over. And that's going to determine, you know, what goes on to lists and OmniFocus and, and so forth. Tasks are infinite. Time is finite. That's the difference. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So when people uh, approach you at Learn OmniFocus and they're like, oh, Tim, you've taught me so much. This is working great, except I'm overloaded. You know, now I look and there's too much in here. I feel like I'm not getting anything done. Um, how do you bring this back to them in a way that they can work on the stuff that's most important? So when I work, especially with people one-on-one, and the very first thing we do, and this is pretty much non-negotiable at this point because I think it's an essential piece, is to do a, a mind map of the person's areas of focus, so Horizon 2 and GTD speak. Um, so I do the mind map on my side. I kind of essentially interview them about what does your life look like, you know, and they say, okay, well, I've got this company on the side and I'm the head of marketing for this company. And I also have 12 kids and whatever, whatever the case is. And essentially what that areas of focus mind map um, represents is an umbrella of everything that they need to manage within their, their systems, both their personal and their collaborative systems. But I think especially on the personal side of things, And then once they have a sense of everything they're responsible for, sometimes they kind of go running, running for the trees at that point. And they say, oh, my goodness, is this really my life? And and, uh, that's when we kind of get out the what do they call them, the pruning cheers and say, "Okay, I don't really need to be on five board of directors. I need to start kind of winding down some of these things or I'm spending five hours a week on this element of my work that I is not really part of my job description. I've just been doing it out of habit. So there's kind of a, uh, it's, it's in a way sort of hitting the, the pause button, looking at things objectively. So you're, they're getting to a place where they have kind of a reasonable responsibility load, I guess you could say. Um, and then naturally, as they have the sort of appropriate amount of responsibilities, then the, the task overwhelm and the calendar overwhelm are going to tend to drop away. They'll, they'll uh, be maybe more uh, more mindful of what they, they commit to and what they take on. Remember a couple of years ago when there was that ice bucket challenge and everybody got all, you know, into the pouring ice buckets over their head. I, I don't even remember what it was for, but it was like a thing on social oh, yeah, media. Right around the start of the pandemic, I think. Was yeah, it? yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like we need an ice bucket challenge go viral for our commitments I think a lot of people, if we could just pour a bucket of ice over our head with our commitments, maybe it would make everybody happier. <laughs> I mean, it, it is such an amazing thing how those how those commitments and responsibilities will add up when we're not paying attention to them. I know for me, this is where time tracking has proved to be pretty important over the last year and a half, where when I get a report at the end of the week or the end of the month, and I can see where I'm spending my my working hours, it gives me, you know, visibility into what I'm doing in a way that day to day, it's, it sounds silly, but it is easy to lose track of. Absolutely. And it's not about letting go of our responsibilities. Like I'm still responsible for the Learn OmniFocus website ultimately and then make sure it's, it's working and all those things. Uh, there was a time earlier in Learn OmniFocus's history where I was literally doing all the maintenance and researching new plugins and things like that. And, and especially when I ran into issues, some days I would spend more time 
fiddling with the website instead of creating content. So now I have an amazing web developer who, uh, if I do notice any issues, he's often getting them fixed within hours. Uh, he's he's doing a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of keeping things updated and adding new features. So I've gone from spending like 10 hours a week to 30 minutes a week, probably on average on that one thing. So just having that sort of clarity about this is something I'm responsible for, but I I don't need to do it all, or I'm I'm giving this too much time and attention at the expense of other things um, is is really gold. Yeah, that has been for me because this I'm just finishing my year here in my new life, and the biggest thing I'm looking forward to as we head into the new year is that I'm able to offload a lot of that back end stuff that I had to be involved with when we set up, but now I don't, and uh, I feel like that's going to be a huge benefit for me. Anybody listening. I would encourage you to think about it the same way, you know, as you go into the new year, what have you been doing that you could now give to somebody else and uh, makes a huge difference. And then suddenly the 10,000 tasks start going away they start peeling off. Do you have a, a system yourself, Tim, like uh, going through like, you know, the review process and OmniFocus I keep talking about, but uh, what is your review discipline? I mean, how do you go through and figure out things that you need to throw overboard? Yeah, just before I get to that, I want to just mention one other point, uh, just to comment on what you just said, David, and, yeah. and to go back to what we we're talking about earlier. This is where it's useful to have OmniFocus and Asana as separate, separate pieces of the puzzle, because if there's some work to be done, let's say there's an issue with the website, I'm at that decision point: is this a task that I assign in Asana, or is this something that goes into my own OmniFocus, where I'm the only person who's ever going to see that? And, and I think that can be useful in terms of of deciding is this mine or is it somebody else's, and that's where the two tools can can really make a make a big difference there. Yeah. Um, in terms of the review, um, so I make extensive use of the um, review feature in OmniFocus. Uh, sometimes I'll even like for leading up to this this interview, I had it this uh, project to prepare uh, set to review once a day, so I'd literally see it pop up each day just to make sure I wasn't wasn't forgetting anything. Uh, but I treat the review perspective in OmniFocus the same way as the inbox. I want to make sure that it's cleared out by the end of, of each day. So I even park it, like I put review right, right below the inbox. And in the old days, I used to do a review of everything that was waiting for review on a kind of a weekly cadence, but I just found I was getting kind of brain numb by the time I'd gone through like 30, 40 projects and, and yeah. having it delivered sort of uh, piecemeal, I found has, has worked a lot better. Uh, but I do make a point, uh, I do a, a weekly review uh, pretty much every week and I purposely don't make it too complicated. I set the bar pretty low in what's the what's the sort of minimum acceptable weekly review. And one of the things I do as part of that is I look specifically at what are the active projects and I take a scan through those and just use that as kind of a barometer to say, is my commitment level appropriate? Uh, have I taken on a bit too much? Um, could I take on a bit more at this point and just kind of use that to, what, uh, what does David Allen say? Stop hugging trees and go up into the fire tower and just sort of sur survey, not necessarily the long term, but how did the last week go and what's, what's the next week can look like. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Setapp. Go to the link in the show notes today and use code MACPOWER to get over 240 apps with a free month trial. 
There's an app for everything these days. Some are great and others are not so great. How do you quickly find the right one for you? Well, SetApp is a great way to discover apps for every professional with a Mac and iPhone. SetApp has over 240 plus apps all available with a single subscription, from coding to design to everyday chores such as decluttering your menu bar or cleaning up storage. SetApp has top-tier software to keep at hand. Imagine what you could do with 240 high-quality apps all packed into one. Whether you need to develop, design, or create, there's an app for almost any task, so you don't need to look into tons of places to find what you need. And with SetApp, you can think about your tasks, not apps. Look, I make the Mac Power users. I look at a lot of apps, and I have to be honest, I love SetApp. I love my subscription. Uh, So often, I need a solution, and I go there and find them. Just recently, I needed to get uh, some better colors for some work on the next field guide. So I went to SetApp and looked, and there's a great app there called SIP that allows you to pick colors for your designs. I started using it, but then when I searched it, I found a bunch of other color-related apps that I really like. For instance, they've got one that called Photo Revive that lets you colorize your old photos. I said, what the heck, I'll give it a try. Downloaded it. We've got a bunch of old black and white photos in the family, and I made color versions of them. And my family is tripping out as I'm sending them these cool pictures of our old relatives in color. And that was just something I got for having a SetApp subscription. Uh, no matter what it is you're looking for, you go there, you'll find that and a whole bunch more. The reason it's so good is they have their own dedicated curation team, and they only select the highest quality apps. Not everybody can get on SetApp. And the new apps are added regularly, updates are free, and all the apps are full-featured pro versions. It's not like they're giving you a crippled version of the app. They're giving you the full thing. And it's a great value, too. Instead of paying $8,000 in licenses, there's just one flat monthly fee of $9.99. And until November 30, use code MACPOWER to get a free month trial. Head over to setapp.com and look for a link to redeem the code and the footer. Once again, that is setapp, S-E-T-A-P-P dot com, code MACPOWER, all caps, no spaces, M-A-C-P-O-W-E-R. And our thanks to SetApp for their support of the Mac Power users and all of Relay FM. So, Tim, we've spoken about a lot today. Uh, we like to wind down these interview episodes talking about some favorite uh, apps and services, things that you use that maybe we haven't been able to touch on yet. Yeah, sure. And I've got a, a long list, but I've chosen a few ones that I wanted to hone in on today. And uh, one is related to YouTube and until until I started using this workflow, my relationship with YouTube was kind of mixed. I'd I'd find these interesting videos and I'd add them to a watch list in YouTube, but a lot of the time it would just feel overwhelming. I wouldn't get around to watching it, and and I'd kind of clear out the queue because uh, maybe some of the videos and the tech ones were getting out of date at this point. So what I started doing, um, it's probably about six months ago, is. First of all, I discovered my RSS service, uh, which is InnoReader, the the pro one that I've subscribed to, has a bridge between YouTube and and the their RSS service. So the way I have it set up now is I'll go into my uh, RSS reader, which is Reader, the R E E D E R, which I know has been mentioned on Mac Power users many times. In addition to seeing my RSS feeds, I've got a a section in there which is for YouTube that lists all of the the YouTube channels that I've subscribed to, and those are being pulled in automatically by InnoReader. So if I subscribe to a new uh, channel in, in YouTube, that'll automatically pull it into InnoReader. And also if I unsubscribe from something, uh, then that'll remove it from my RSS reader. 
So at that point, uh, I have an intermediate step. If I see something, maybe the latest Max Sparky video and say, okay, I really want to watch this. Instead of going directly into YouTube, I use an app uh, called Play, which I think has been mentioned on the show before. It's available for the Mac, iPhone, and iPad. And what Play does is it essentially assembles playlists for, for YouTube, um, which might seem a little redundant because uh, YouTube already has this feature built right in. But what makes Play special is it uh, makes it very easy to classify those lists, uh, and it can even classify them automatically. So if Max Sparky appears in the name of the video, then it'll automatically add a Max Sparky tab within Play. So if I say, okay, I'm uh, wanting to catch up on my Max Sparky videos, I just open up Play, I look at all the ones that I've accumulated there, and then I uh, I can just play them directly from Play, open up YouTube, and it'll start playing. Uh, so it's a much more intentional way of managing the lists. I'm much less likely to get kind of sucked in by, you know, what YouTube recommends next and much mm-hmm. more likely to be drawing from the the sources uh, that I've identified as really valuable and, you know, great kind of signal-to-noise ratio. Yeah, I've been experimenting with something really similar. I use Feedbin and Reader, and I can just give Reader the URL to a channel in YouTube, and it just shows up as a source in uh, in Reader. And I, you know, I put them in a folder so they can pile up down there. Uh, but it's something I'm playing with too, because I definitely have had similar struggles of saving things to my watch list, and then that thing is a thousand miles long, or getting sucked into something that you know that I didn't have the intentionality toward but you look up and it's been 30 minutes and so yeah, youtube uh, I, I, is really good at that it, it they are <laughs> the best at it maybe second only to tiktok and uh and so yes this is a, an interesting thing and i feel like if you have a similar relationship to youtube as maybe uh we feel like we have at times using an rss reader to consume youtube is pretty great and it also means i only have one place to go to see like the the you know the the blogs I follow as well as the YouTube channels to me the, those have almost started to feel like the same thing, uh, and then just having that play in the middle play can also do essentially smartness where I can say show me videos that are five minutes or less in length or something like that. So if I got a few minutes before lunch and I just want to you know watch something from my queue, I can hone in on that very quickly and uh, yeah just really enjoy that that video and not have to kind of dig through the list and find one that's worth watching. Good tip. Any other apps that you like? Uh, there's a browser called ARC, A-R-C, that I started using recently. I think it's still in maybe a private beta. Um, I'm not sure how easy it is to to get on board, but uh, it's a it's a Chromium-based browser, so it's an alternative to using something like Google Chrome. Uh, but there's something about ARC that I really resonated from the, the beginning. They've really taken an innovative approach to the web browser. I think kind of kind of turned turned it on its side, so to speak, quite literally, because the there's no tabs across the top. They put them along the sidebar. Uh, but there's there's something it's a, it's an opinionated design is the way I would put it. Some people are going to love it, some are not going to be interested, but I, I like the fact that they are forming an opinion around web browsing and doing some things that I've never seen done in in any other other web browser. So it's not my primary browser now. Um, 
It's one that I tend to run like web apps in, uh, like I'll run Asana in ARC, uh, my YouTube watching happens in ARC and things like that. So that frees up Safari to be used as kind of my general browser. And to make that practical, there's a, um, a great app called uh, OpenIn, all one word, and it's available directly from the developer and was added to setup a while back. And what OpenIn essentially does is it, it channels the request. So if I click on like an Asana link in an email, um, it'll there'll be a rule in OpenIn that sends that request off to ARC, and so it'll bypass Safari and uh, and just take me directly where I want to be. So that yeah, that combination of apps has just worked really well. And and having again essentially an automation running in the background that that redirects the traffic means it's it's hard to feel very very seamless. Yeah, uh, Arc is really interesting. I do like the idea that people are trying to experiment with the browsing apps because it does feel like all the big players are making different flavors of the same ice cream. Yeah, yeah, definitely. One one feature of Arc that I, in fact, I have it up on the screen as we as we talk now is I can press Command S and that'll hide and show the sidebar. And so the looking at the Google Doc in front of me, all I see is the Google Doc with a nice colored background around it. There's no no plugins exposed. There's no tabs, anything like that. And it just takes me into a really nice focus mode. And then if I do want to go somewhere else, I just press Command S again, and there's the sidebar, and I can move to a different profile or one of my bookmarks or another tab that I have open, things like that. All right. The last recommendation you have here is Grammarly Desktop. And I definitely want to talk about that because... Mm. My relationship with Grammarly Desktop is pretty uh, pretty icy. I, I'm a Grammarly subscriber. I think it's a good service. Um, it's the only grammar checker I've ever had any confidence in. But uh, I always I have a, actually a keyboard master script that I fire off that goes to the web and puts the stuff in their web-based grammar checker. And the reason is every time I've used their desktop app, it seems like it's just dog slow compared to the website. But you have specifically called out the desktop app. How are you using it and how do you get around that problem? Yeah, so most of the time I'm not running Grammarly desktop. Um, the way I'll typically use it is if I'm writing an email, and I use this for pretty much all emails I send out because it's so convenient. I'll say, okay, I think I'm done with the email. I'm just going to hit, in my case, it's shift option command G for Grammarly. And that uh, triggers a keyboard maestro script, which opens up Grammarly. Um, inevitably, there's at least one little typo or yeah. a comma missing or something, or even just the, the style suggestions it has. Maybe I'm being a bit, a bit wordier than I need to. That's influenced the way that I write. And I'll make whatever corrections are needed, and then I'll do that shift option command G. And then Grammarly's gone. Uh, it 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 quits. It's not going to kind of get in the way of of what I'm doing because it, it is. Uh, I would find it kind of annoying if every time I wrote an email, it started pointing out errors. Because maybe it's like yeah, I'm not done yet. Don't don't check my work until I'm done. Yeah. Um, but having that extra step of having to copy and paste it into, I think it's still text based when the uh, on the web interface and then having to reapply the formatting and things like that really added some friction to the process. So this I've been extremely happy with. It works with almost every app, including all of Apple's apps. Um, occasionally I find one where there's a compatibility issue, but it's um, but I find it works really well. And yeah, the key for me was just leave it 
uh, quit it for most of the time and then just bring it to life when it's needed. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to try it out. I'm going to go back and try the desktop app again. Uh, the website does uh, now support rich text and import and export. So that problem has, has been solved. So I, I understand re- uh, historically it did not. So that was an issue, but uh, I'm going to check that out. We're going to put a link in the show notes to Tim's uh, keyboard maestro macro where he uh, copies and pastes it over and does the whole, does all the work. Uh, so I, well, you can check that out, but I, I'm a fan of Grammarly. Steven, are you a Grammarly subscriber as well? I think you are. Yeah, I am. I use it on the web. I'll paste in a big article and and run it through there. Um, I also use the browser extension mostly for, uh, show notes in the relay CMS. So it'll catch things, catch things there, but I run it in the browser almost everywhere. I have it off in Google docs because it, it wants to do weird things sometimes with Google's built-in spell check. Um, and like show notes aren't writing, right? It's, it's yeah. an outline. It's okay. If it's not, if it's not perfect, it's just, uh, it's just an outline. So, but yeah, it's, uh, I, I found it to be very useful over the last couple of years. Yeah. I mean, I don't take all of its advice, but no. I, uh, I uh, do find that it often call, catches dummy mistakes, even though, you know, you write these things, you go back, you proof it, you sit on it a day, you come back. Uh, because you wrote it in your brain, I feel like we are wired to miss typos. And all three of us write for the internet, and the internet loves to tell us when we get things wrong. So uh, I try to run as much as I can through Grammarly. <laughs> yeah, I'm very good at spotting other people's typos, but uh, not always as, uh, as yeah. good about my own. Yeah, it's a sort of bias, internal bias, I guess. Well, Tim, I love the intentionality you bring to your productivity, and I was really happy that you uh, were able to come on the show. Uh, Sorry it's been so long. We're going to make sure that doesn't happen again. And and I just want to congratulate you on eight years of Learn OmniFocus, continuing to provide great content. You're an inspiration to all of us. And uh, I'd I'd, uh, encourage people listening that are interested in productivity and OmniFocus to, to check it out, Asana. I mean, you just cover a lot over there, so people should go check that site out. Tim's main website is learnomnifocus.com and technicallysimple.com. How do people get a hold of you, uh, Tim? Uh, I think the easiest way would be through the forms on each of those sites. So there's technicallysimple.com slash contact and learnomnifocus.com slash contact. And yeah, and that'll that'll go straight to me. Excellent. Uh, we want to thank our sponsors today, 1Password, Text Expander, Electric, and Setup. Uh, Thank you again, Tim, for coming on. And we are the Mac Power Users, and we will see you next time.